Welcome to Read, the research, education, and advocacy podcast. And to remind our new readers and our old readers, the Research Education Advocacy Podcast connects you with prominent researchers, thought leaders, and educators who share their work, insights, and expertise about current research and best practices in the fields of education and child development. As you all know, I'm your host, Danielle Scarano. I'm coming to you live with fall back to school energy. I'm actually recording this episode on the first day of school. and. There's truly nothing like the first day of school. I mean, there were smiling new faces. I must have met like five different students that I didn't know, and I'm not even in the classroom anymore. But this back to school feels revitalizing, especially all that we've dealt with in the past couple of years. I am beyond lucky to be with a new colleague, a new friend, maybe with our back to school energy. We're now new classmates, New York City neighbor. I could go on. Dr. Katie Pace Miles. Dr. Miles, welcome to the Read Podcast. Danielle, I'm so thrilled to be here. That was the best intro I could have imagined on this exciting Thursday that is the first day of school in New York City. Thanks for having me. Yes, I have two kids. I was just talking about my uh, older child's in first grade and it was back to school for her. So uh, what a day it is. What a day to be recording. I know. What do you remember about your first days of school? Do you have any memorable moments? I do. I remember my parents making back to school a really big deal. And my grandparents um, would come over in the morning at a god-awful time in the morning, and they would be hanging out and waiting for us to get dressed. And it was this big thing about us putting on our new school clothes. As a parent, I really appreciate the formality, the Mm -hmm. enthusiasm, the importance that was put on this moment of going back to school. Mm -hmm. I love that. I have similar memories. And We had officially met over the summer. I think we talked for well over an hour. And I have to say that speaking of the school theme again, if we had been classmates in school, I would want you as a group member in the group project. I mean, I learned so much from you and it's just been an exciting, I know you've had an exciting end of summer start to the school year. And I want to talk a little bit more about that and your background, but first I'd like to introduce you to our read listeners. Oh, that's so nice. I'd love to have you in my, uh, at my sitting at my table in first grade too, Danielle. I think that's yeah, that'd be fun. so fun. Yeah. Well, let me officially introduce you to our read listeners who know you and are just being introduced to you during this podcast. So Dr. Katie Pace Miles completed her doctorate in educational psychology, learning development and instruction with a sub-specialization in research on the acquisition of literacy with Dr. Linnea Airy. Now it, this episode is releasing actually in October for Dyslexia Awareness Month and Reading literacy is something that's so important for the Windward Institute. I'm excited to talk to you about that. So in Dr. Miles' tenure track faculty line at Brooklyn College, she oversees the graduate and undergraduate development and teaching of literacy courses in the early childhood department. As a former early childhood and childhood teacher and learning specialist, she conducted reading and writing assessments of and interventions with students with literacy delays and disabilities. She worked closely with teachers, families, and school psychologists to support student progress. Now, there's so much that we're going to talk about to our read listeners in terms of your work, Dr. Miles, and research, education, advocacy in New York City and truly beyond. So I'd like to start with your story and your background. Tell me this through line, how you got to where you are today, professionally and personally. Great. So uh, I was actually fighting, resisting uh, becoming a teacher, uh, a 
always like to mention that I, I knew that it was something I should check in with myself when I was in college, but I kept saying, oh, I'm going to become this, that, or the other thing. And I wound up reading the book, Savage Inequalities. And that's the book that really changed my trajectory. So I read that and I said, no, you know what? I'm going to follow this path. And at the same time, I wound up with a part-time job tutoring in college. And I thought it was amazing. I taught a young child how to read. And that was my first uh, foray into education. And from there, I uh, went on. I was trained as a second grade teacher. And then I taught kindergarten and third grade and wound up as a learning specialist for grades three through five. While I was doing that, I started as a learning specialist, I started working on my master's and I went into educational psychology instead of going in and getting a master's in education. And that's because I became obsessed with how children develop the ability to read. And at the time, I was really interested in like what goes right and what doesn't, what isn't clicking for some kiddos. And I really couldn't explain it more than that in that moment. Um, when I was learning specialist for grades three through five, my caseload was full of students who I think m- the majority of them wound up being like curriculum casualties. They just didn't get the instruction they needed at the point in time that they needed it. And then they were, uh, you know, put on this path where they needed separate instruction from a specialist when really they just needed high quality tier one instruction. There were students who were diagnosed with reading disabilities, and those students were able to get the interventions they needed. From there, I wound up seeking out Linnea Aries research, and I was very fortunate to get a fellowship to work with her for my PhD. And it was the most incredible um, career move ever. It was amazing. Right. So you are working with these students, and then all of a sudden, you're like, I just need to learn more from Linnea Aries. Like, how did that? work to get into the research realm in the way that you are now? Yeah. So while I was in my master's, we were doing some projects where we could pick a topic and then seek out the research on that. No one really guided me to Linnea's work. I just started going down a rabbit hole as so many of us who are passionate about the development of literacy do. I started going down a rabbit hole and eventually found her work. Now, I, I have to say this is years before what's happening now with Emily Hanford and Facebook and so all, all of the social media around it, I kind of stumbled into um, what is known as the science of reading. And it really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. I had been trained in a, let's just say, non-science of reading curriculum that I needed to implement. But when I was a specialist, I was using all what are now considered research-based, science-based approaches without me really even knowing that I was aligned. So when I came upon Linnea's work, I said, this is exactly um, what, what I've been waiting for and what, and what I needed. I wound up applying and then having some conversations with Linnea and, again, was just really fortunate to wind up with a fellowship. I was out in Colorado, too, for my I'm from the East Coast, but I was out in Colorado. Oh, and so when I received this fellowship, it was a major life changing moment where I had to move um my husband, we came to New York so that I could work with Linnea. That's really interesting. And so I love how you talked about your early career and how it influenced you. And then when you came upon the science of reading, I love what you said too, about when you were working with students, you saw what worked that the work that clicked and what didn't click. And then unfortunately seeing these kids that were the curriculum casualties, right? I love to highlight some of those things that you said. And so now that you're here in your work as 
Dr. Miles. Um, what is the primary focus of the research that you're doing? And how does this research intersect with classroom practice? So the primary focus of my research has been on the instructional application of Linnea's, Dr. Aries' theory of orthographic mapping. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in translating that theory into practice as widely as we can and to um, come up with evidence-based approaches for primarily K-2. And so I've done some work, I've run some experiments where I applied this to high frequency words. We analyzed how best to go about uh, learning of high frequency words. We had some interesting findings there. And I also do a lot of intervention work now where I've looked at intervention programs. I also wrote an intervention program where the theory of orthographic mapping is the North Star, as I would say. And while that's the North Star, in one of the programs I'm primarily focused on ensuring students have this liftoff into word reading through um, word analysis and whatnot, the other program needs to be more extensive. But I want to make sure, and by more extensive, I mean that it interweaves the five essential components of literacy. But I want to make sure that orthographic mapping, again, is our guiding light. We're making sure that that's a through line in the intervention program. Mm, And I want to get to, I want us to break down what orthographic mapping is. And you talked about high frequency words. And for our readers at that point, I think they should have some notebooks to write down some notes as we're learning from you. But I want to start with our why. And the reason why is because I've been reading a lot about the science. Obviously, you talked about the social media and and a lot of the work from Emily Hanford, from the the community, scientific community at large, truly for decades, right? Has Push, pushing the science of reading for a reason. And, and the reason is, is getting back to supporting the students and particularly the students that need this type of instruction most, the research-based instruction. And I say this because, you know, we are releasing this podcast during Dyslexia Awareness Month in October, and this extends beyond students with dyslexia. Students that are struggling readers that may not be diagnosed with dyslexia, students from vulnerable populations, the students that you work with. and You are a professor, you're a neighbor in New York City. You've done extensive work supporting struggling readers and teachers throughout New York. And I want to start by highlighting the why, focusing on New York City DOE. Um, We know that the DOE has reached national news among other cities and read, I think, recently San Francisco in reading discourse for its push to comprehensively address reading education in the city, supporting children with dyslexia and other vulnerable learners. And I was just reading an article. And that was published September 1st, um, the, New York, the New Yorker article, I'm sure you read it as well, that even quoted that as of 2019, 47% of the city students in grades three through eight were considered proficient in reading, according to these state exams, and that only 35% of Black students and less than 37% of Hispanic students were proficient in reading. So that's starting with our why, that we're not reaching every kid. Mm-hmm. And so- I want to start with the work that you've been doing in New York City, like Reading Ready and Reading Rescue. What is that type of work that you've been doing to support our struggling readers? Sure. Yes. I, I, Danielle, I just want to say I, those statistics, we just all have to refuse to accept that those statistics are sufficient. For mm-hmm. a long time in the city, those numbers would come out and it, we just keep going along without changing our methods, without Uh, getting rid of the curriculum that wasn't working for certain populations of students and is truly unacceptable. So thank you for mentioning that. 
I'd love to tell you about the work that we've been doing uh, during COVID. So in the fall of 2020, I wound up going uh, back into the semester with my students and they had 30 hours of field work that they needed to complete on the development of literacy. I also I live in Brooklyn and there were students all over New York City whose skill, school buildings had been closed and were continued um, to be closed, whose teachers were totally overwhelmed with trying to figure out in-person and remote instruction. There was simply not enough supports for these emergent readers. As someone who knows the development of literacy the way I do and the way my colleagues do, it was, it was an, again, an unacceptable situation. These students needed more support. Um, what I was, what I could do to help out was I trained all of the students who were enrolled in my grad and undergrad courses at Brooklyn College in a program that is evidence-based. It's an intervention program called Reading Rescue. It's been used around New York City for quite some time. We trained up the students at the university. We sent them a box of materials. We gave them 12 hours of training. And then I worked closely with my colleague at DOE Central, Andrew Fletcher, who helped us pair these university students with striving first and second grade readers in a uh, high need school and underserved school in New York City. These were schools that have high economic need index and low ELA proficiency scores. These are, we worked with families, predominantly students in families who overwhelmingly would not have been able to afford a private tutor. What was also going on during COVID was that families who could afford it were hiring private pod teachers, private tutors, paying for private school if they can. And I don't disparage any of that. I just wanted to, I want to acknowledge though, that we could not have this inequity can be exacerbated during COVID in the way that it was. And so we did all of this tutoring remotely. These university students were providing these free tutoring sessions three to five days a week. That means it was high dosage using an evidence-based program, they, the university students were getting really good training on how to actually implement research-based methods. And the students were getting, and the families were getting what they needed. So we started that in the fall of 2020, and I just thought it was gonna be part of my coursework, and it was beautiful, and it was a real coming together. You know, our CUNY students come from many of these schools that we were serving, and so they felt really, um, passionate about doing this work and giving back, then the, the program wound up growing. And uh, CUNY Central, University Dean Ashley Thompson said we could expand this to more pre-service teachers. And so just last year, we wound up growing the program to the point where we trained 650 pre-service teachers. Those are university students enrolled in the School of Education. We trained them in either Reading Rescue or a program that I wrote called Reading Ready, we give all the programs out for free. We do mm. all of the service for free through grant work. And we wound up serving, so I said 650 pre-service teachers, we wound up serving over a thousand New York City students from underserved communities. And we're, wow. it's been incredible. We're going to grow the initiative this year to 800 pre-service teachers because we just, we see the value um, for the pre-service teachers, and we're going to try and serve over 2,000 students this coming school year. Schools have been really receptive to the work. So I want to go back to 2020, and what you've done here is amazing, right? And so we're thinking even pre-pandemic, the literacy rates being unacceptable. 
and the pandemic happens, right? Mm-hmm. What was your rationale in using this research-based program with your pre-service students two to three times a week? Why two to three times a week? What was the benefits in using that, that rationale? And why? What, what benefits did you get then using the pre-service university students and pairing them with these elementary, first and second grade students in New York City schools? Sure. So the benefits of high dosage tutoring, meaning that the tutoring is received by the students three to five days a week. That is a, um, an evidence base that has been built out there that it's not just tutoring once a week that, that moves the needles for striving emergent readers. It has to be high dosage. And that mm-hmm. takes a real commitment from the tutor. That's um, very difficult to schedule. And what we did is we, we just broke out of the pre-existing notions of what field work needed to look like in the university setting. So those of us who are teachers, we've, we've all done field work as part of a course. And you might have gone into a school, you might have sat in the back of the classroom, observed a child, you might have done a read aloud or whatnot. In COVID, everything was so urgent. There was no time to be wasted. And we all know it was all hands on deck in education. And I felt like I was looking through a Zoom at all of these individuals that had skills that needed to be improved. And simultaneously, they had a skill set that could be leveraged to support students in their in our communities and around Brooklyn and elsewhere in New York City. And it was just the coming together of those two things. Wait, I could improve outcomes for pre-service teachers and grow the field that way. That's what I do as a professor in the schools of education, right? I'm trying to build capacity and improve skill sets of our future teachers. But at the same time, I can go in and support students one-on-one in, instead of just having um, university students watch videos during COVID because um, schools weren't accepting university students into their Zoom rooms or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of video watching for pre-service teachers. Um, that was the best many many of us could do. I just right. had this opportunity that I could fig- I was able to find a way to do this other and um, leverage the field work in a different way. I think it's paved a way forward for not just my courses, but some other courses at CUNY and at other universities who are now replicating this model of taking interventions and training their university students in it and then executing um, in their communities. I love that. And I, there's been quite a few episodes I've recorded, one with Dr. Louise Spear-Swirling talking about that importance of the field work with evidence-based programs. And when you talk about evidence-based interventions, anyone who's listened to this podcast and have read your work is familiar with those components of evidence-based interventions. But I'd like to just focus more on the orthographic mapping piece. Sure. Um, you talked about it at the beginning of this podcast. and. I remember watching you in, in preparing for this interview. I watched you on a recent webinar. I think you recorded it this year where you said that it may appear that our children learn whole words, but that is not true. And despite all the work and the research that's being put into this and how much it's being reported, I think it's still valid. And so there's such a value in continuing to explain why children don't learn whole words and how they actually learn to read. And so I want to actually talk about the way that children learn to read by understanding your work on orthographic mapping. So 
What do you mean when you talk about orthographic mapping? So all the credit for orthographic mapping goes to Dr. Linnea Airy. She's the theorist behind um, orthographic mapping. And she has decades of research that demonstrated and that actually fed this theory. And what she found over years, decades, and what other researchers then were able to replicate was that students most effectively learned new words when they were analyzing letter sound relationships in the words and when the meaning of the word was also available. So orthographic mapping is the process of securely storing words in memory by bonding the spelling, pronunciation, and meaning of specific words. So you're analyzing that specific word. It may take multiple exposures until this amalgam, as, as Ari talks about it as, at this amalgam is stored. And students will need varying amounts of exposures, right? So some students may need, this is David Chair's self-teaching hypothesis, some students may need four interactions, four exposures to that word. Other students who we've all worked with may need 50 exposures to that word before it is securely stored in memory. And when, when Linnea explained, when Dr. Airy explains securely stored in memory, what she means by that is that at some point you see the word and the word is automatically retrieved. That amalgam is there and ready to be used. It's automatically retrieved so that you say the word. You see it and you say the word. So one of the, I, I actually think it's quite understandable where the confusion has come in, where practitioners think that individuals read or we learn best when we memorize whole word, because it looks like proficient readers are reading whole words that they have memorized. But eye tracking research, incredible research by Dr. Stanley Stehane has showed that we actually parallel process as proficient readers, we parallel process all of the letters in the word. And that's what we're lifting off. But we're, we are attending to all the letters in the word. That's how we know that the word slim is different than the word slit. Mm. Or something where there's a one letter difference in the word. It's because we are we are paying attention to all those letter sound relationships. Yeah. So when you talk about letter sound relationships, and again, with words, what do the, what are the skills that students need to be able to do to enact this orthographic mapping on the word level? So this actually takes in the emergent literacy years. So I'm talking, you know, pre-K to second grade, even before students are in formal pre-K, even before they're in the enrolled in a four-year-old preschool program, there needs to be lots of work with uh, phonological awareness to the point where then they're using their phonemic awareness skills. So orthographic mapping is reliant upon students' phoneme segmentation skills, as well as their letter sound skills. So that's just not alphabetic knowledge. Alphabetic knowledge is you know that A makes these sounds and B makes those sounds. English, as you know, has a sophisticated orthography where different combinations of letters also make one sound or, or whatnot. And so you, you need extensive phonics knowledge mm -hmm. in order to be successful with orthographic mapping. And then you also need, you can never neglect the meaning part of this um, too, especially if you're working with uh, emergent bilinguals, second language learners of English. You have to make sure that the students have meaning context for that word. Is that a word where the meaning is held within it? Like it is a content word, like the word house, 
Or is it a function word where its syntactical use is really important to storing that word in memory, like the word up? Mm. That's a part of this as well. Right. So to clarify, if I'm thinking about I'm the teacher in the classroom, my students need to know their letter sounds. They need to know how they operate and say like word parts like syllables Mm -hmm. and then bringing in that type of. I guess mapping those syllables into a word are also important in terms of like phonics and understanding word meaning as it's placed syntactically in language is also important. That's right. Great summary. And I forgot one though. You need also that that was three, but there's a fourth one, which is that you need multiple opportunities to analyze that specific word. So this sometimes gets confused with, oh, well, you already mentioned letter sound knowledge. Yes, you can have general phonics letter sound knowledge. Uh, we In research, we call it grapheme phoneme correspondence knowledge. But that will only get you so far in spelling the word rain. Rain could be spelled R-A-N-E. It could be spelled R-A-Y-N. Or it could be spelled the way it's spelled, R-A-I-N. So phonics mm-hmm. knowledge gives you, and I could go on with different um, ways to spell long A, but phonics knowledge gives you these options it's orthographic mapping of that word. So it's the this moment when you spend time analyzing that individual word. That's another part of what's needed in order to do the larger concept of orthographically mapping words. Mm. It's so fascinating. I love to think about, in my head right now, I can think of like all these different ways to spell rain, for example. It's mm-hmm. just so interesting to study. You talked about a misconception of children reading is this whole word reading. We know that's not true. When it comes to orthographic mapping and its implications for instruction, what are some top misconceptions that you see researchers or even educators, families making when they think of something like orthographic mapping? I think when people learn about orthographic mapping, there's an assumption that phonics in and of itself will cure, solve, mitigate it's it's what you know is needed to solve all of our literacy problems or whatnot or, or that is what will do it for emergent readers and while of course phonics a phonics program a really strong phonics program which I'm very excited that New York City is moving in this direction well that's an important part it is not going to address everything that needs to be addressed when it comes to the development of literacy the development of literacy is very sophisticated very complex. And so phonics is one part of the orthographic mapping uh, situation that we need to deal with. There are other things that need to come into play. Each phonics program needs to be critiqued for how well it supports orthographic mapping. Again, I said like just learning letter sound relationships in and of themselves um, may not be enough for a lot of students to actually automatize large corpuses of words. Once you automatize a large corpus of words, then you're able to read more fluently. When you're able to read more fluently, it leads to stronger comprehension. But all the way along there too, we could spend all this time just talking about comprehension and what is needed from from the field of reading science to support comprehension. So I think the orthographic mapping piece is critical to understanding emergent word reading. Mm -hmm. Emergent word reading is one part of a very large puzzle. Right. I mean, I'm a a big advocate. I was trying to think of a richer word to talk about 
the level of advocacy and how passionate I feel about how reading instruction also needs to be language rich. I think we talked about this in our meeting about a month ago about how we often underestimate the power of language, not just like oral language or even written language, the instructional language that a teacher is using, right? If a, if a teacher has difficulty understanding the implications of orthographic mapping or helping children even break down the letter sound knowledge and provide the feedback and the questioning, you know, you, you, you need someone who is trained to deliver a type of program like that, as you're doing with your pre the countless pre-service teachers that you're working with, with the intervention program. Absolutely. Training is so important. Fidelity checking. We do all kinds of fidelity checking with our pre-service teachers. We provide all kinds of opportunity for feedback. And that's the same thing with, with in-service teachers who are new to learning about orthographic mapping um, to new program implementation. Absolutely. That is a huge part of it. You, you mentioned language-rich instruction. And I, I just want to say one of the things about English is that it's a morphophonemic language. Mm-hmm. And that oftentimes, once we learn about, we get excited about orthographic mapping, and we should be very excited about it, and we get phonics going, we have to also critique our programs to say, well, are they addressing morphology? Are they acknowledging the morphophonemic connections between um, words that emergent readers are learning? And how can we leverage morphology to expand vocabulary for emergent readers? Yeah, absolutely. So it requires this all-encompassing integrated approach. Speaking of morphology, I know you've done a lot of work with high-frequency word lists. I found a lot of some of your research through some of the collaborative work you've done with Dr. Devin Kearns, who's a longtime friend of Winward as well. And so I, I started getting down a rabbit hole as well on high frequency word lists, thinking about how I would use this in my own classroom. So when you think of something like the Dolch and Fry or high frequency word lists, you mentioned function versus content words. What's the use of, of these types of word lists for teachers? These types of word lists, I, uh, just a shout out to Devin. He's amazing. Devin's just so incredible. And he's done wonderful analyses and he's supported me in my interests on analyzing high-frequency word lists. The value of these high-frequency word lists are that they are putting together a list of words that students are going to come come in contact with while they're reading text most often. That was the purpose of, of these lists back in the day. They are truly what they what what it says, high frequency, that means you're going to see these words a lot and it's just a list of words. These lists of words were never really intended for instruction in the way that they're being used, or at least like mm. way back in the day, right? It, this idea that we would be memorized, having emergent readers memorize these lists of words, um, and we that we would be memorizing them in the order in which they're appearing. Um, my advice for, and again, I work pr- primarily with K to two, kindergarten to second grade teachers. My advice is break out of the constraints that you feel with these lists. Take these lists and bucket the words into, oh, these words have letter sound relationships that I've already taught or the students mastered in the previous year. Those are all words that are now decodable for those for my students. They can decode, they can segment out the sounds and blend those words back together. These words have letter sound relationships. 
that I still need to teach. But once I teach them, these words are decodable. And then there will be words that are permanently irregularly spelled. And you should also analyze those words. But that is not the majority of the list of words. Devin and I were looking at a subset of high-frequency word lists, and we found it was about 16%. But I've learned even more since I did the, uh, ran that analysis. And when you teach more phonetic elements, the subset of words that are permanently irregularly spelled becomes a lot less. It becomes smaller. And so I'm working um, with Denise Eide, who has done a lot of work on the logic of English. That's her, her book and her company is called Logic of English, where she's analyzed, analyzed these high-frequency word lists and says, you know, and in fact, 98, 99% of the words on these lists are regularly spelled or decodable if you know all of the rules. I do want to say, I think teachers may or may not want all of the knowledge or teach all of the knowledge that gets you to that 98, 99%. But it's important to acknowledge that that knowledge is available. And it's important for teachers to not think of all of these words as we have to memorize them. Well, and I think it's interesting what you're talking about, because when we think of these high frequency word lists, again, they are a resource that are available to teachers. But I, you're speaking, I think, to the importance of the systematic teaching of English, right? When these you look at these words and they're may not be in the, or I haven't seen them recently, but I don't know how, what order it is or any type of word list, right? That if you're actually coding these words, there's a system and there's a rule that's governing our language. English is a rule governing language. And you talked about how, when you analyze these words, 16% of them were irregular. That means that 84% of the words that are on these high frequency word lists have a regular pattern that you can decode these words. And I'm getting excited because I think I told you this last month when um, I was teaching a few years ago, I was teaching fifth grade and I went to an IDA conference, International Dyslexia Association conference. And I heard that statistic. And I, of course, was the quirky research loving teacher that went back to my students and probably did some sort of like proportion showing them that 84% of words in these word lists were found to be regular. And that I think was empowering to me as a teacher to think, okay, well, then I need to make sure that I'm teaching these types of rules because if the students are learning the systematic way of decoding English, they can become much more proficient in, again, the orthographic mapping of words. And so then as you are talking about the systematic code, how should educators then approach the regularity of language and its rules? Should we be so, I guess you talked about it, but should we be so curious in the way that we're approaching language or what resources, I guess, are needed then for teachers to understand the way of teaching language in this way? I love this question. I think there is a, I think it's very important for teachers who are working with emergent readers or older striving readers or striving readers at any age to become inquisitive about the English language. And I want to be careful here because while there are, there are researchers who believe that all of the English rule-based knowledge that the teacher acquires needs to be translated to the child who's learning. I think that there's a developmental point at which you can transfer all of this knowledge. But I know uh, personally, and I know with my graduate students, that as soon as they start receiving some of this information about the regularity of English beyond, you know, the typical, these letters make these sounds, 
their whole approach to teaching word reading changes. They are so much more inclined when a student is struggling with a word to tell the child, let's take a look at that word. Let's look to see what uh, letter sound relationships we see. Oh, did you know that this group of letters makes this sound? And it's not that we need to uh, blow out our phonics curriculum to a point where it feels unbearable. We do need to critique our phonics curriculum to make sure that it is encompassing enough to have robust uh, decoding supports built into it. We do need to rethink um, how these high frequency words are not a protected class of words that need to be other than our phonics curriculum. And we even need to take those permanently irregularly spelled word and analyze the reliable letter sound relationships in those words. So I, I do think for teachers, if, as soon as, and you don't need to take a linguistics course either. I don't want anything to feel daunting for teachers right now. They've gone through so much with it. They're amazing. Everyone who is teaching in a classroom right now is absolutely, absolutely heroic with coming back and serving students. So I don't want them to feel this burden. Um, I want them to be excited that it actually will translate into stronger word reading skills for your students more fun with word work for sure um, as well. And I just think of more enjoyment in, in the classroom around reading. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I think really it's about empowering teachers and like you'd write word work can be fun and, and also empowering them with the resources, the training and the knowledge that they can go back and say, okay, here's the systematic way that we can teach these words to our students and showing them how that can be sequenced. I mean, when I think of, we use the term ESSLI at the Wingward Institute, explicit systematic sequential literacy instruction, right? The sequence and the systematic piece of it is really important. And I keep coming back to it. I think it's so important for that. Definitely. I love getting really into the nitty gritty and then communicating it in a way that people can understand, like how we, like, what does that look like in the classroom? That's really fascinating. That's right. I, I know we're almost out of time. We're nearly out of time, but I have to ask you in summarizing your work and your career, what is a couple of things that you'd like to leave people with? Maybe what do you wish more people knew or what is your hope in, and maybe in the opportunity that lies ahead for supporting readers in New York, as well as truly all readers across the country and the world? Maybe we won't get into the world. We don't have enough time, but maybe in, New York, in, in looking at your work, New York City and beyond. I'm really excited about what's happening in New York City right now. I'm energized by it. I know that it's going to be an uphill climb, but I think we are perfectly positioned um, to do this. And the students are, are, it is overdue. And so I would actually just leave by thanking the teachers who are on the front lines of doing this work, who are going in and being retrained. Um, I want to give a shout out to the teachers who knew all along that the program they were using wasn't effective and no one was really listening to those teachers. And so um, I just want to give them a shout out. I've talked to many of those teachers over the years. I want to also state what I mentioned earlier, which is that teaching a child how to read, especially in the emergent years or if it's a striving older reader, is complex. And it takes a level of sophisticated knowledge of the tutor or the instructor that I think is often unacknowledged. 
by people who want to simplify the work that we do. I think uh, there are policies that come along and whatnot. And for those of us who actually sit with children and teach them how to read, this is so complex. It is so idiosyncratic to what that the skill set that that child is bringing to you and the skill set that you have and the uh, interaction with the program that's in front of you. And so these uh, we in research, we call them student by treatment interactions. There's also instructor by treatment by student interactions. And that is something that teachers experience every single day. And they make these micro adjustments in the moment. They're absolutely brilliant. And I believe that that's that is um, the important work that I think often goes on uh, unacknowledged. And so I just I love that. I just want to give a shout out to all of the instructors out there. I love that. That's such a great, powerful way to end this episode. Dr. Katie Pace Miles, last last final question. Where can we learn more from you? How do we get in? How can we learn more from your work? How can we learn about all the work that you're doing in New York City and beyond? Oh, that's a, that's so nice that you're asking. I, I will be giving more talks at conferences coming up. So I'll be talking um, at some conferences that I can share with you, Danielle. Um, also, I, I want to let you know that I opened up some new coursework at Brooklyn College. And so I just developed a course actually in partnership with AIM Institute on reading interventions. And so I've been Amazing. doing all of this work during COVID on reading interventions. And I'm really proud that we're able to put this coursework forward. And we even have some scholarships for uh, teachers to come and do the coursework. So I would love to have more students over in my courses. Uh, that would be the best way to be in touch. And other than that, I also have a website that I promise I will be better at updating with talks and things like that. So you can find me at katiepacemilesphd.com. I love it. You are just full of resources. And you know what? I'm no longer a colleague. I'm going to be a student. I mean, I'd love to learn from you more. So <laughs> oh, I'd love to have you in class. Oh my gosh. Wait, Danielle, we could co-teach it. That's I could I would no, I would be asking, I'd be the person in like the front row or in the Zoom, like constantly with my hand up. So I'll try not to monopolize the conversation and the questions. It would be awesome. I would love it. Yeah. Dr. Miles, thank you so much for being on the repodcast. This has been such a pleasure and an honor to be a part of your podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. What an episode. Dr. Miles, I am so appreciative of you and your work and Meeting you for this episode was truly a highlight this year and provided a window to this enlightening conversation to our read listeners. I love learning from Dr. Miles and I hope you all enjoyed learning as well. The work that Dr. Miles is doing to promote access to high quality literacy instruction in New York and beyond is truly inspiring. You can learn more about Dr. Miles's work and my top read bookmarks or top moments from this episode by visiting each episode page at readpodcast.org. There, you can have access to all of our experts and their resources from past episodes. I encourage you to check out episode six with Dr. Tiffany Hogan because she is our upcoming fall community lecturer. Dr. Hogan will deliver the talk on October 27th at 7.30 p.m. titled Developmental Language Disorder, the highly prevalent learning disability hidden in plain sight. You can register now at the Windward Institute's website. As you all know, I continuously strive to connect you with and learn from inspiring leaders and advocates in research and education like Dr. Miles and Dr. Hogan. 
If you have any thoughts, questions, or ideas of topics and speakers, feel free to reach out via email at info at readpodcast.org. I also invite you to like, subscribe, and share the Read Podcast with friends and colleagues. You can also like or follow the Windward Institute's social media pages to find out more about upcoming speakers, episodes, and events. Until next time, readers.